Audi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Mand. The injustice of the death penalty is something to which Clive Stafford Smith, one of Britain and America's most powerful lawyers, has dedicated his working life. On this episode, we hear all about Guantanamo Bay. Did you know it has a McDonald's? For staff, obviously, not prisoners. And Clive describes death rows across America, his travels to the family of prisoners across the Middle East, and his campaigning against drone strikes in Pakistan with cricketer-turned-politician Imran Khan. It's a fascinating insight into a world not often seen. And despite the content, Clive is a wonderfully witty and entertaining guest. Here he is, Clive Stafford-Smith. So it's the Big Travel Podcast, and obviously we're going to be talking about travel, but you've, you've had a different experience of travel mm. through your work. You are, Wikipedia tells me. Oh dear, you know, some <laughs> of the things in Wikipedia, they had me born in 1919 at one point, which I thought I was preserved quite well. <laughs> so you're a civil rights lawyer. You've been called one of Britain's most powerful lawyers. You're an anti-death row campaigner, and you have an OBE for humanitarian services. Wow. Tell us in words, maybe, if you tell us, what, what do you do? Well, what I do is I represent people who are hated by many people in the world because I suppose what my dear mum told me was that you know, as a privileged white male, or as I think we define me at this point, a privileged old white male, it's my duty to help people who are less fortunate. So, you know, you look around the world, you see who's being hated and you get between them and the ones doing the hating. So you represent people on death row and mm-hmm. you do that or no, at no charge to them. You've represented about 300 people in the States and have a 98% success rate in getting them off de- death row. Is well, that right? as you well know, people lie with statistics all the time and you know that's a whopping statistical lie. Yeah, I've had six of my 300 people executed and that's six too many. But to say that the other 98% were a great success is, is not true. I mean, there's, for example, Krishna Maharaj, who's a British guy on death, who was on death row in Florida, who is patently 100% innocent. I've represented him since I had no gray hair 23 years ago, and he's still in prison, and you can't say that's a great success. And I just got the latest pleading from the government. I mean, can you believe this? Their argument, which is based on a Supreme Court case, is that the fact that he's innocent is not a reason to let him go under the U.S. Constitution. Tell me that isn't mad. So they're agreeing that he's innocent? No, they don't agree. They're wrong. I got five members of the Colombian drug cartels saying, hey, you know, how do you put that guy in prison for that? That's one of ours. And uh, they won't agree because they'll simply never admit they made a mistake. But at the same time, they say it's irrelevant. You shouldn't even have a hearing on this because... uh, It doesn't make any difference. He can't be set free just because he's innocent. I'm assuming that there are quite a few innocent people on death row, but there are also many, the majority, I'm assuming as well, that have done horrible things. Now, I know a lot of people. Well, you you say that, though. We did a series of 171 capital cases in New Orleans over a period when I was running a charity there, and we were able to exonerate 126 of them. So that was... uh, 74.9 percent 
were totally innocent. Now, you know, that's pretty shocking. I wouldn't say that 74.9%, you know, three quarters of everyone's innocent, but the legal system is vastly more flawed than people are willing to accept. Because in that case, the police, one officer told me when he went to court, he'd go to court to test a lie, not testify. And they had a system where they were collecting Crime Stopper awards by calling in a tip against some young African-American guy they didn't like, going out and arresting him and charging him and framing him, and then collecting $11,500 worth of reward money for having solved the crime. And this was a way that they supplemented their, their income. So there are these horrific things that... Uh, but I know what you're going to say. I'm sorry I interrupted. Of course, there are people who did it. So how do you... I mean, that's, that's just awful. I can't even get my head around that, that people are getting their whole lives ruined and even terminated in, in some cases. Terminated because, is a quaint word. Yeah, but they're getting <laughs> killed, I guess. <laughs> but their lives are getting ruined and they're being killed when they're completely innocent. But what, what some people will say is there are also these people that you're representing that have done horrible things mm. and they will say, how can you sort of morally square that? Well, I don't have any problem with that, uh, you know. So the, the worse the crime, generally, the more obvious the explanation. I was just on the phone yesterday with the mother of a six-year-old child who was absolutely 100% killed by my client, Ricky Langley. But Ricky was very, very mentally ill. Uh, he's a long, long story, but the bottom line was that uh, you know, his mother was in a body cast when she got pregnant and was exposed to all these drugs, and no one realized she was pregnant and all the rest of it and he comes out with all sorts of problems and he is a pedophile and he's incurable and he's also schizophrenic and Lorelai Guillory the mother of this poor child who was killed is a wonder one of my great heroes because she although she's not educated she's from southwest Louisiana she came to the point where she met with Ricky to, because she wanted to understand what happened to her poor child and was convinced in the end that he was insane and she testified for us at the trial and when I asked her you know do you have an opinion about that chap over there who you know clearly killed your six-year-old child she says to the jury she turned to the jury and she says yeah as a matter of fact I do and these words they always just make me sort of weep because I, I she was so impressive that she said I think Ricky Langley's been crying out for help for one reason or another since the day he was born and his family society, the legal system hasn't listened to him. And as I sit on this witness chair, I can hear the death cries of my child, but I can still hear that man crying out for help, and I think he was mentally ill and he should be in a mental hospital. And now that's astounding, and I see those sorts of amazing people every day of my life, which is an immense privilege. Is that what motivates you to do this work? No, I do it because it's a tremendous privilege, and it's really interesting on a human level and you know I'm very sorry for people who don't get the same sort of fantastic job I have but then I reckon your job's all right too if you go traveling around. <laughs> You've done a lot of traveling and a lot of dif different traveling to the sort of traveling reviewing luxury hotels that I do. Um, I need to get on your junket. You I'm, do really maybe do. we could combine it yeah, I don't know yeah. there, there might be something. You're gonna there. have to do some work on the hotels in Guantanamo I'll tell you. Well I was gonna say I, I don't know maybe let's start with Guantanamo have you been you've been over 20 times I do believe. No I've been 36 times it is my Caribbean resort of choice. I've lived over a year of my life in Guantanamo. And over the years, you know, I've represented about 88 of the prisoners there. 
It's just a bizarre place. You know, you go there and they have McDonald's and Recreation Road and the Guantanamo Golf Course and all of this stuff. But of course, they also have the sign that says, Honor Bound to Defend Freedom, which is a bit like... <laughs> Ironic. <laughs> yeah, a teeny bit like Arbeitermacht frei. And then they don't... I, I say that as a Jewish person, and you know, I don't mean to offend anyone, but frankly, Guantanamo is not a great advertisement for America, and I speak as an American. So, you know, in Guantanamo, the first time I went there, you know, they just have no sense of irony. And I'm going into McDonald's with a colonel, uh, who's a very nice chap, and this young soldier salutes him and says, honor bound, sir. And he salutes back and says, to defend freedom, soldier. And I laughed. I thought this was a little joke that they were having for my benefit. Oh, you and don't want to laugh at the US Army? Uh, no, it was a big mistake. They were very serious and quite offended. <laughs> How can they do that when it has now been openly acknowledged that people are being tortured just around the corner from where they're standing? Well, you know, there are lots of decent people in Guantanamo. A lot of the soldiers are decent and they find it a dreadful place. The problem are the politicians, you know, like I will say that I didn't vote for our current president. And, you know, the man, in my opinion, and I don't know if you're allowed to publish this on air, but he's deranged. <laughs> and the idea that those politicians who have no earthly idea what happens in Guantanamo should be saying that the people I represent, who right now there are 23 nobodies left in Guantanamo, five of whom have been cleared. One of our clients has been cleared for 10 years. And Trump thinks they should stay there forever. I mean, it's just He's been cleared madness. for 10 years. What is the justification for keeping him in there? They don't give a justification. They say might is right. You know, we say you're a bad dude, even though the six intelligence agencies say you're not. And we're not letting you go. And the problem is you've got to find someone who will make them let them go. I mean, we've managed to get 94% of all the prisoners out of there. So that's some success. But for the people left, I, I'm about to go on another of my holiday junkets there. So you're most welcome to come and do a review of the uh, of our local motel. I know it's not the thing that should stand out most about Guantanamo, but they've got McDonald's because they don't have anything like that in Cuba, and, and rightly so, you know, one might argue. Hmm. But uh, that's quite funny that it's just this bizarre American area stuck on the side of Cuba. And I, I imagine that a lot of people don't even realise where Guantanamo is and how unusual it is with the whole sanctions and everything that it is you know on, on Cuban soil. Well you talk you, you do a travel program and actually I was at a thing last night and I had in my back pocket I just realized this bit of paper because I went to a play last night down in Bridport where I live which is called Last Resort and it's by the Two Magpies Theatre and it's imagining Guantanamo Bay as a holiday resort. <laughs> and it, it's actually very nicely done that, that it begins as if it really is a holiday resort with all the Americana and stuff. And then gradually you begin to get a little sense that maybe not everything's okay there. And then they start waterboarding people. And, you know, it just reminds me of the very first time I went there where I met one of these really nice American soldiers who thought the whole thing was a mockery of justice. And he was telling me that what he really wanted to do was turn it into a resort because it's got a nice, uh, you know, it's got a, a place for all the big planes to land because that's where they bring all the prisoners. It's got very secure hotel rooms that have been <laughs> built for maximum security prisons. Got a couple of nice beaches, little things that you could perhaps have a little history museum about the history of torture and so on and so forth. And uh, it would be much better as a resort than as a prison. Maybe one day it will be, you know, a bit like the concentration camps, a, a place that people can visit and 
remember. Well, I imagined that. I, I took my nine-year-old to Sechenhausen, which is a concentration camp just outside Berlin last year. And, you know, it's, it, I really am impressed by the way that the Germans have come to grips with uh, all of that stuff. Berlin is so interesting and the Jewish Museum is mm. incredible. So I do imagine, I wrote a piece about this, about, um, you know, when an, I'll be about 90, I suppose, when I take my grandson to the hotel resort of Guantanamo and I'm showing him around this museum and all the rest of it. Uh, and there'll be a whole library of the books they banned, like The Innocent Man by John Grisham, because you can't have the word innocence in the book. <laughs> they banned Jack and the Beanstalk because they might have a secret bean that helps them escape. And it's totally mad, but that's what they do. I'm trying to swing this to travel, but is it, I mean, do you get to see the rest of Cuba? Cuba is such a wonderful place, generally. The second largest landmine field in the world is between the base in Cuba. So no, you don't. You don't want to cross that, to go do you? There. No, probably not. So when you've been there, you haven't... Uh, I've never been to Cuba because for an American citizen, it was illegal for the longest time. And so I've never been there. What do you think the future is now we've got? What's the name? Is it? I had to write his name down because it's so recent that he, uh, he's come into power. Miguel Diaz-Canel, what do you think it's going to... Well, I, like I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. I think the Americans have less reason to hate him. But on the other hand, they've got a madman in the White House. So it's going to be a while before anything gets normalized, which is such a shame, because it has been our American intransigence that has maintained a pretty, I don't know, Neanderthal type of regime there for a long, long time that would have long since liberalized. I mean, there are good things about the regime, the healthcare and so forth, but we need a little more free speech and so forth. I was going to ask you a question about you being British and then your... Uh, no, I am British Oh, you too. are I British. Okay, yeah, you confused me then. Cause I, I get to apologise for lots of people. My, uh, my research had indicated that you were British and then most of your work was has been in America for a significant period of time. What, what's the American connection? Well, I went there as a 19-year-old on one of my early travels to go to university because I grew up in Cambridge and my mother was admissions secretary at King's College and you don't want to go to university where your mum's going to know what's going on. And I, I thought that I could sort of sort the Americans out and tell them why the death penalty was a dreadful thing and I was an arrogant little prat. So you knew when you were 19 that that's what you wanted to do? Oh, we all have our obsessions. What's yours? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's changed over time. But that's oh, a very interesting you're not question. You're going to answer my question, are you? <laughs> oh, I much prefer to hear what you think than what I think. <laughs> But anyway, I, yeah, I went there to university and uh, then I, I wrote a book that I thought was going to change the world. And of course, it, you know, only my grandchild will read it, who is not yet born. But I learned that people on death row had no right to lawyers. And so I thought I could actually possibly do more good by representing them and writing juvenilia about them. So you were based for a long time in New Orleans? Yeah. I'd love place. to go to New Orleans. Have I have been not been. No, oh, your I haven't been. Life I'm is really empty. embarrassed. I yeah. really I really want to go. Until you've uh, I, you know, I have my wife on my shoulder where she does all sorts of unspeakable things in order to get a black coconut at the Mardi Gras parade. You know, New Orleans is a wonderful, wonderful town. Tell me about your what's your favourite part of New Orleans? I don't know. That's very hard to say because actually I loved the work I was doing there. I loved Mardi Gras. I loved the jazz festival. Fantastic. I, the whole place. Great, great, great. That's where you set up a centre to... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was a death penalty trial office, a charity. Yeah, we, we did a lot of 
death penalty trials. That's what one does. So you've been to parts of America, I imagine, that none of us will ever get to. Like, I'm, I'm picturing grim desert wastelands with a, a prison in the middle of it. Is that... But there is a lot. those sort of places? I mean, the prison, and the big prison in Louisiana is called Angola because it's where there was a slave plantation with slaves from Angola. Oh. Then you've got Parchman Farm. I mean, all those old... That's Mississippi, where all the blues players got locked up to. And, yeah, I've been to most of the death rows of the Deep South, if truth must be told, and they are unhappy places. Describe death row to me. Well, death row is all about people, really. And, and what's, what's odd is that the conditions of the actual prison are much less relevant than the attitudes of the people who run it. So, for example, when I was in Mississippi, back in the olden days, when there was a warden there called Don Cabana, who was a decent human being, uh, that was a much more humane place where, you know, however horrible it is. There was a documentary years ago in the BBC where they executed one of my clients, Edward Johnson. It was called 14 Days in May by Paul Heyman. And, you know, what you see in that awful, awful documentary is that Don Cabana let me stay with Edward and he let me walk into the gas chamber with Edward. Now, you know, Edward was innocent and I managed at a young age to get an innocent person executed, which is something I'll have to live with, but at least Don was willing to make an inhumane process a little bit more civilized. Whereas you go to a really modern prison like the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center in Georgia, and they're just barbarians running it, and it was just a disgusting place where they would torture people to death in the electric chair. So, you know, none of them are good, uh, but the ones that are run by human beings are better. Was anything different under Barack Obama, or was it that just sort of sort of a, a, a glossy fallacy? I mean, you know, the tragic truth of Obama was he did a lot of things that were far worse. He did the most wonderful thing, which was essentially being an African-American president in a country where, you know, I've interviewed jurors who were members of the Ku Klux Klan and who invited me to a Klan meeting. So. You know, that's an amazing step forward for America. But the problem with him was he had all this good talk about abolishing Guantanamo, which he didn't do, abolishing torture that didn't happen. But he substituted it with things that were worse because he started the assassination program. And so, you know, talk about travel. Um, they had a PowerPoint display, they still do, in the White House every Tuesday called Terror Tuesday, where they'll shine up pictures of bearded people who they don't like, the CIA. And the president of the United States will say yay or nay as to whether we should assassinate them. And uh, so we do this. You, know, you think the death penalty is a problem. Well, that's after a trial. But if you think about how many mistakes they've made in Guantanamo, where we've proven they had the wrong, non-dangerous person, you know, nine times out of ten, now what they do is they just try and assassinate them with a drone and a Hellfire missile, and frankly, that's worse. So even though, you know, there, he was a decent human being, Obama, but he did some really, really damaging things to the world. Are you concerned about the Trump administration? <laughs> Am I concerned? I mean, I, I, I hope we survive the Trump administration. How we end up I, you know, with, with someone like that in the White House is absolutely beyond me. You're meeting all these, obviously there are some innocent people, you're also meeting some of the so-called most depraved members of society. Has it changed 
the way you look on the world? How, how safe do you feel? How safe oh are we? God, I'm totally safe in prison. Yeah, one of the things you have to remember is that we're all better than the worst 15 minutes of our life. And so people who are accused of dreadful things who do them, there's always an explanation. It's not necessarily an excuse, but there's an explanation. And honestly, I don't like representing innocent people. Uh, I'd much prefer to explore why we do what we do. And if all of us were to reveal on your program the most despicable thing we've ever done, I think we'd all be judged fairly harshly. And frankly, I'm not going to tell you. Although I did just write a book about it, about something I did to my poor father. Uh, so you'll be able to... What's the book? Tell me about the book. Well, the book's... My, my dad was bipolar. And so I wrote a parallel life between my father and a guy on death row in Georgia who was bipolar called Larry Longshaw, which was originally intended to destigmatize mental illness by just sort of comparing all of these things. But, you know, the more you do it, the more you realize you can't destigmatize other people's issues without dealing with your own. So the book ends up, I'm afraid, with far too much stuff about my own mental idiosyncrasies in an effort, I hope, to help us see. Well, you'll probably just think I'm deranged myself, but <laughs> in, in an effort, I hope, that we can talk about these things instead of just putting them in the closet and hiding them. I suppose, like you said, if our innermost thoughts are revealed, we're all a little bit mad in some way. Well, there's a lovely book I read recently by Alain de Botton, who has in there one point there'll come a time in, in a world when we're much less judgmental where when you sit down to dinner with someone in one of your fancy restaurants somewhere uh, you know whether it's just a dinner or whether it's a date or whatever and one of the first things you'll say in a non-judgmental way is and how are you mad and what that'll do is it'll help you understand people and what he says in his book is we end up in marriages in our world where we enter it for all sorts of reasons with actually no idea who the other person is i'm sure my wife could tell you that <laughs> and if you were to have those conversations which i find fascinating i'd love you to tell me how you're mad you'll get to read all about how i am then you know you you, you get to get it all in the open and then no one's quite so uptight about it all I mean, I'm going to note that down for a, a dinner party conversation opener. How are you mad? I love it. You should do it. Tell me about your experience in the Middle East. Well, I've had lots of experiences there. When, the, for example, Guantanamo was first, at first opened, it was secret who was there, so you couldn't find out who they were. So I would travel around the Middle East trying to find the families of people who had been contacted by the Red Cross so I could find out who they were, so I could offer to represent them for free and then try and get them out. So I had lots of experiences in odd places that you read about now, like Bahrain and Yemen, where I would go and just hold a press conference and say, hi, I'm an American, I'm sorry about this. Uh, but the most interesting, actually, I think, was Jordan, where I was there on various things. And one of them was to try to track down the Jordanian families. And I get a call from the Secret Service, they say, and they tell me I have to come in and talk to them. And I say, no, I don't. Uh, I'm busy. And so I ignored them, and then they called back and they got more hostile, and I told them I had nothing to do with them. So in the end, they told me I had to come in. And so, all right. So I went there, and I wasn't thinking about it. I was busy. As I'm going there in this taxi, I tell him where I'm going, and he goes pale, and he won't go up to this big building. He drops me off about a quarter of a mile away. And I suddenly realize I haven't told anyone where I'm going. <laughs> so anyway, I go in there, and, you know, you go into this place with these long white hallways with black doors every now and then. And I get shown into this room and there are these two people. And I, I decide, well, I'd 
better play the arrogant Brit, right? Because, you know, I might not come out of here. So I went up to them and I said, hi, I'm Clive Stafford Smith. Who are you? And they said, we do not use names in here. And I said, well, I'm going to find out who you are. And by the way, I've told my embassy if I'm not out of here in two hours, they'd come and get me, which wasn't strictly speaking true, I'm afraid, but I think it was an admirable fib. So then we had this whole conversation, and I, I did, I took a description. I said, I'm going to take a description of you, and I'm going to find out who you are, because, you know, I'm not putting up with this nonsense. And sure enough, it turned out later that it was Colonel Ali Borjak, who was head of their secret service, who was, had been to Guantanamo a lot and had been interrogating all the people there. And it was, you know, a fairly scary experience, but, you know, that's What did they want to know from you? They wanted to know what I was up to going around trying to find these terrorist families. And I said, look, I'm here to make up for the dreadful mistake that my country's making. And, you know, I'll apologize to you as well as everyone else for what we're doing, but you shouldn't have anything to do with it. I hear you went to Pakistan with Imran Khan, or you were there with Imran Khan. What, tell me the Imran Khan story. Let's, let's uh, say who he is, the cricketer-turned-politician. Yeah, I love Imran, actually. I think he's a very, very decent human being. The only thing I have a vehement... Uh, disagreement with him on is I invited him to come and play for the Mapperton Marauders, which is my village cricket team. And he told me that he thought after captaining the Pakistan World Cup team that that might be a bit of a letdown. I can't believe he said that. No, he's a lovely guy. And so I went there. I've met him several times because he's been a great ally, particularly on a project that we at Reprieve have had on assassinations that the U.S., has used drones and Hellfire missiles to try to assassinate people, particularly in Waziristan, which is the border area with uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, because our intelligence is so unintelligent, we have ended up killing dozens and hundreds of innocent people. So, for example, one time they targeted a school and they killed over 50 children. They targeted a funeral and killed over lots of mourners. They targeted a political gathering and killed lots of the politicians. When you say targeted, do you mean it's a deliberate thing? Well, this is what happens. Uh, Imran and I held a jirga, we called it, a meeting with, all, with a bunch of the victims. And clearly some of the people there were stooges for the CIA. I told them, I said, you know, look around you in this room. There's going to be a couple of people from the intelligence services and they should be ashamed of themselves. Well, one of the people I talked to there, Tariq Ali, was a 16-year-old kid who was just there because his cousin had been killed and he wanted to know how to stop this nonsense. Three days later, he was killed with a missile himself. And what had happened was one of those snitches in the audience had a choice of either identifying a bad dude or identifying a totally harmless person and collecting his money by saying that person was bad. And naturally, they always target the wrong people because it's much easier. And so this happens all the time. So Imran and I organized, he gives me credit for this, but actually he was clearly the force behind it. We, we organized a rally to go into Waziristan to go to where the U.S. was killing people. And before we went, I wrote to Obama to say, look, we're going. And I'm an American citizen and I voted for you. And so if my picture comes up on Terror Tuesday, will you please tell him not to kill me? And so, you know, we published that because it was a spoof, but it was just to make a point. Well, we get to Islamabad and the U.S. ambassador, after all the jollities and all the rest of it, says at the end, oh, by the way, you know, Washington's told me to tell you we're not going to kill you. 
Then we go into Waziristan, and I hadn't really figured out. It was my idea, but it was pretty mad. Not because it was actually dangerous for us to get killed that way, but because the Pakistani drivers are <laughs> dreadful. And we had a 15-kilometer-long traffic jam of mad people driving at 60 miles an hour on these tiny roads to, to go into Waziristan. It was great fun, and I think it made the point. It illustrated, along with a bunch of other work done by some wonderful people in Pakistan, we reduced the number of drone strikes from one every two or three days to none over a whole year. And even today, I mean, they maybe have one every six months, but I think we finally stopped them from doing that, which is good. What do you suggest they do? There are bad people out there in the Middle East, apparently, you know, who, who want to sort of crush Western society. What do you suggest people do? Well, when you think about the British, you have their own assassination list and the people that we want to assassinate in the Middle East. I have various problems with that. First, yes, Syria's chaos. Why is it chaos? Because of what we did in Iraq. And if we would just stop going around invading countries like that, it's something Tony Blair has to account for at some point. So really, I think it's true, as the song goes, that you can bomb the world to pieces, but you can't bomb it into peace. And the, the rapidity with which we resort to violence is just mad. However, that said, there are people in the world who do deranged things. What you have to ask yourself, when the British are going to Syria to target individuals that they think we should kill, you have to ask yourself two or three things. One is, are they right? They're very often wrong. The second is, why are we doing it? These people are in Syria. They're not in London. Almost everyone who ends up doing something in this country have been inspired in a terrible way by our hypocrisy, by saying that we stand up for the rule of law and everything decent, and then instead of, you know, we're opposed to the death penalty with trial, but we're willing to execute people without a trial in, with these drone strikes. And so, you know, what we do is we impart, import extremism without importing people by doing these hypocritical things around the world if we are to stand up for our principles and do what's right, there'll be a lot fewer people who want to kill us and hate us, and there'll be a lot more people who want to help us and make sure bad stuff doesn't happen. And, you know, ultimately, my disagreement with politicians is I think they do these things for short-term political gain to sound tough, with no sense of whether that makes the world a safer place, which it clearly doesn't. Have you got any reasons to be cheerful? Oh, yeah, of course I do. I mean, I've got lots of reasons to be cheerful. When you look at the world, it's very hard to say that the world today is a worse place than it was when, when you know, some of my tribe, if you will, were in Sachsenhausen and Auschwitz getting gassed by the Nazis. We've had, since 1945, uh, an enormous explosion of human rights, which is wonderful, which is empowering poor people and powerless people in a way that's hugely important that just didn't exist before. And we've got media who, for all their flaws, expose a lot of this. And we're doing travel stories like yours about interesting human rights issues to get young people to come and work with Reprieve and do my work so I can retire to the country <laughs> and play, play cricket badly. How do you get funded? Is it through the charity work? It's totally through charity work. We are a charity. It's all donations. And I have very strong opinions about that, that we run way more efficiently than businesses do. You know, they always bang on about capitalist businesses being so efficient. No, they're not. And, you know, we have principles such as, for example, the most 
high paid person in reprieve, which I can assure you is not very high paid and it's not me, uh, is cannot be paid more than a third more than the lowest paid person. So that means we don't pay enormous salaries to people to do human rights work. We, we pay them a living wage that they can survive on because we have an enormous privilege, which is helping people who need help. And none of us do it because it's, it's money. We do it because it's an enormous privilege. So where do you go for fun? Haven't you just spent some time in Corsica? And I was told to ask about your dog, which uh, I don't know if is a good story. No, this is not a good story. A I was going to ask story. you. This was going to be the lighthearted bit at the end. No, no. There was a wonderful part of it. My wife and I took our nine-year-old Wilf to Corsica for school, out of school for three months. You know, that's one of my fantastic privileges because I was writing this book, so I got to take him out of school and go to Corsica. Good. I'm uh, a firm believer in taking kids out of school oh, to travel and fantastic. explore the world. It's a great education. And the crazy thing about Britain is, you know, you take your kid out for two days and they fine you £120. You do it for a whole term and they let you do it. So we took him there. I was kind of hoping he'd learn French with an extraordinarily bad accent like mine. And then we did all these great things. Where in between writing this book, I got to teach him and you know, we'd do whatever he wanted to do. And it turns out, Wolf has more rhythm in his little finger than I have in my whole body, as everyone will attest to. And so he got really into drumming. I learned so much about John Bonham and Led oh, Zeppelin. Oh, good taste ah, for a nine-year-old. Great, like great. And so all of that was great. The, the slight fly in the ointment, which was a big one, actually, was we took our Irish setter, Flynn, who is named after a corrupt police officer who testified for me in a capital case. Uh, and he was a lovely Irish setter. And I had him out for a walk one day, and he was just a little ahead of me, and we were just walking in the hills. And there was one bark and then a bang, and then silence. And this Corsican goat herder had shot him. And now the problem really was that the guy, I get there, right? And the guy says it's his land and I can't come on it because it's a criminal offense to fire a, sh a shotgun in France per se if you don't do it in hunting. And so he wouldn't let me on the land. It wasn't his land, it turns out. And I did lots of investigation trying to find the dog. Uh, and his cousin said that he just shot his dog too. So it was this terribly sad thing that, uh, that Wilf's dog had been shot. That's heartbreaking. Why the hell did he shoot the dog? Well, because he's mad. You know, to give him, he's a farmer, so you, you can understand farmers being afraid of dogs that are going to attack their animals. But Flynn would never do that. He was trained not to do that because we live in the countryside. And it was just disgusting, and it's so, so sad. That's uh, awful. And so that was coming back from there with one member of the family less was a great oh. tragedy. You know, my the only dog I've ever been in love with sounds wrong but the only dog I've really ever loved because I've never owned a dog was an Irish setter mm. and there was Sonny and Cher and they were two Irish setters when I was yeah. about eight years old and one of them got stolen and then found dead so oh, I've got another sad. dead Irish setter story no. this is meant to be my happy bit I know, the well, let's do the happy <laughs> stuff I've got it before I ask you my last question have I missed anything well, we've got to find the happy ones. No, I do. I've got a good, a happy thing. Well, oh, unless you you've got. Well, it's about music. My last question is always about music. Oh, is it? Oh, cool. And because I think that music goes hand in hand with travelling, because you often listen to more music, you have more time. Oh, you might yeah. be sitting on a plane or a car or whatever. Yeah. And my question is, if you had to choose one song, were I to get this uh, podcast, if I was to get this po podcast sponsored, I'd be able to afford to play music, but now I can't <laughs> at the moment. We can so sing we're just it gonna, together. We, can, we might be able to sing a little bit. I don't know what the uh, PRS rights are in that. 
If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a moment, good or bad, in travel, a place in the world, some sort of travelling related memory, what would that be? I've got lots of them because actually I've always, with every capital trial I've ever done, I've had a theme song because when you're in the middle of the night preparing for the next day, what I like to do is have one song that I have on repeat and I have a different song that's, that's appropriate for each uh, trial. And so I've always done that and I love that. If I had to choose one song, look, I did Desert Island Discs and you can listen to that and hear what dreadful taste in music <laughs> I have. And it varies because there's always different things. But I think, I mean, my theme song, which I play wherever I go, is Chumba Wumba. <laughs> I get knocked down, I get up again, ain't ever going to keep me down. And, you know, it's all that. I've got a whiskey drink, I've got a lager drink, all the rest of it. I better not sing it for you. But I, I love, love it. No, I love it. Yeah. I've danced to that many a time oh, after yeah. a few drinks. Oh, yeah. What is it about Chumba Wumba that inspires you? Well, that's, I mean, it, the lyrics actually are, sort of I suppose my philosophy of life because we do get knocked down a fair amount in my little world but you always get up again but I just love the song and it is great I mean I used to have all these dreadful dance parties in New Orleans if truth must be told I'm an awful dancer I feel sure but I just love it so we would have all of the ones with that and Dancing Queen obviously and other dance songs if you're working hard you've got to play hard right so we would have these parties that would start at 10 and go till dawn and then we'd go back to the office and I love that. And I think no matter how dreadful a dancer one is, it's really important to enjoy it. Fascinating stuff from Clive Stafford-Smith, founder of Charity Reprieve. That's it for this week. Join us next week when we have Sonali Shah, presenter of BBC One's Escape to the Country. Thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.